Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're happy to welcome Pedro, partner at Armelar Venture Partners, a Portuguese VC firm with a history of more than 20 years, a high-performance track record, and an international footprint with 260 million euros of assets under management. Pedro leads most of Armelar's sustainability-related investments and also has a keen focus on enterprise software, SaaS, and IoT technologies, actively participating in the life of a number of their portfolio companies and scouting the wealth of international investment opportunities. Pedro has a Bachelor of Science degree in Physics Engineering from Institut Superior Technico. He started his career as a researcher in physics for Oxford University in the UK and holds an MBA and Master of Science in Economics from Universidad Nova de Lisboa. Before starting today's episode, we'd like to introduce you to Four Degrees. Four Degrees is the VC Relationship Intelligence CRM that helps you source and close deals in less time. Built by VCs who recognize the power of relationship networks, Four Degrees will transform your network into a living, breathing engine of opportunity by automating the deal-making process. To learn more about how Four Degrees can help you leverage your firm's relationships to move deals forward faster, visit fourdegrees.ai forward slash EUVC. Before we get on with the episode, we want to direct your attention to our upcoming fireside on raising VC funds in certain times. Just hit up our LinkedIn page and register for the LinkedIn Live on June the 7th. 3 p.m. Central European time. Pedro, welcome to the European VC. I always love having some fellow countrymen, especially because we try to bring only the ones that are doing awesome stuff in the VC industry. So super fun to have you. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. I hope you guys are good as well. It's a pleasure to be on, on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Super happy to have you here. I think I should start by asking you to tell us your story of getting into venture. I think it's more authentic that it's me than, uh, than David because he knows all about that. So Pedro, tell us all about how you got into VC. Well, it wasn't at all planned. It's <laughs> not there. So my background is in science. I'm a physicist. I haven't been a physicist in a long, long time, but that's where it all started. Studied in Lisbon and then went for a PhD in the UK in Oxford. While at Oxford, I was having a lot of fun, but also came to the conclusion that uh, you know academia was really not for me. I was doing something in theoretical physics, so you know essentially mathematics, modeling, and dynamic systems. Very basic stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. So I was in astrophysics. I was modeling the dynamic of galaxies. So that's what I was doing. <laughs> Which was really cool, but uh, not really applicable to the ground in the real world. And I felt that I needed to do something here. And I also sort of fell out of love with academia. I wanted to live and work in Portugal, even though I was studying in the UK. And at that time, and we're talking mid-90s, doing research in Portugal was a very ungrateful task. So all my colleagues they kept spending their time looking for grants to sort of pay for PhD students and whatnot, and doing very little proper uh, academic uh, research. But I didn't know what a physicist could do at the time, so I sort of, okay, what can I do with this that I have now? 
And I found a wonderful world of consulting. Found that consultants were typically open to bring in people from different backgrounds if they thought it could be useful for their work. And I joined what was Anderson Consulting at the time, now Accenture, their Lisbon office. A tremendous uh, work school at the time. I did that for about six years as a manager there. And, and then I said, okay, well, now that I'm sort of doing this business stuff, I need to get some proper business training, <laughs> which I didn't have at all up until that point. So I wanted to do an MBA. Accenture, at least at that time, did not really foster people leaving to do an MBA. And, and um, so I quit my job to do that. I picked a wonderful time to do that because I started my MBA September 1, 2001, <laughs> so 10 days before the towers collapsed. So all hell broke loose at that time, as you know. Finished my MBA, ended up joining a large consumer packaged goods brewery, Central Cervejas here in Portugal, as a, the IT director and organizational director, which was a great line experience for two years. And then after two years, actually, the, the consultancies that had completely shut down in the summer of 2002, when I finished my MBA, sort of started opening up again. And I was actually called in from one of the companies that I had initially applied to, which was Boston Consulting Group. So I went back into the dark world of consultancy. <laughs> and that was, again, very intense, very fun, a tremendous work school for another six years. I was uh, part of the Lisbon office, but fiscally in the, in the Lisbon office, but actually I was part of a, a pan-European office in the IT practice area. So always worked very closely with technology organizations, which from the start. And then the opportunity just appeared. This is 2009 that we're talking about. The, my partners working here was sort of ramping up the organization and inviting me to join the team back then. So it was sort of that juncture at the, the consulting career where, okay, you can either go all the way and be a partner as a consultant, or you can do something different. And I decided to do something different at that time. And it was a, a really decision. So I joined what was Spirit Sun Ventures at that time, uh, 2009. And it's been 13 wonderful, terrific years since then. So that was not planned at all. And I, frankly, when I was invited, I had to educate myself about what was venture capital. It was not something that I looked for. So I was lucky to bump into it. We should dive into the story of Armilar, of course. But I'd love to just first hear now juxtaposing consulting and, you know, you spent 13 years in consulting and now you spent 13 yeah. years in VC. <laughs> I'm actually curious to hear you juxtaposing the two and saying what has been the, the biggest differences and what has been the biggest surprises. So biggest differences, consultancies and at least those that I worked for are large organizations and you have all sorts of backups and support services. So you really only need to worry about delivering your data day job and, and thinking about the client's problem, how to solve it, then you have all the structure behind you, supporting you, which is relatively comfortable <laughs> as a consultant, I have to say. That does not exist in at least the small VC teams, of course. You know, there are VC firms out there that are very large and have very large support organizations, but it's certainly not our case, certainly not the case of most VC firms that are sort of small teams. So it's not the case. So you have to go and re-educate yourself about doing everything from top to bottom. <laughs> so that's one thing. But the other thing, and, and I think the most important and frankly attractive thing is as a consultant, you're solving someone else's problem and helping uh, another organization, particularly if you're a strategy consultancy. It's not very often that you see the result, the output of your work go through. 
in the sense that you know you provide a recommendation to the client. You know you might stick around to see its implementation for the coming months or a year, but it's always on someone else's organization, and very often you don't really see it follow through because then the company will go and do whatever, take your recommendation or not, or do something different or take part of it. In the VC uh, world and in the entrepreneurship world, every decision that you make and you need to be nimble at making them directly hits <laughs> and directly affects you know, the outcome. Yeah. And you see and feel the outcome and you live through it many years, uh, as you know, right? So you know, making a decision to invest in a company in the VC, you're going to be living with that decision for years and working every day to help and make that company a success. And it very much goes right under your skin. It's affecting you, your life, not a customer's life, not a third party. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I always think that it's interesting to hear how consultants think about going into VC and how it has changed their outlook on things because there are so mm. many consultants out there looking to do exactly that move, right? <laughs> but there's also a lot in, from consulting that I continue applying every day in terms of method, in terms of analysis, of course, that all is very helpful luggage that you carry with you going forward, of course. Yeah, for sure. Okay, Pedro, let's move to Armilar. You used another word <laughs> or another name just before. So let's start there. What's the story of Armilar and how did it come to be? Armilar was born 22 years ago now, so the year 2000, founded by Joaquim, my, my partner, and he was working for one of the large Portuguese banks at that time, Bank Spiritzend. He was working within their more advanced technology businesses, so he was you know, part of launching the home banking and internet banking and, and phone banking technologies way back when. And he's also, I mean, as most of us here at Armula are an engineer by training, and a person with a scientific background, and so very much a tech enthusiast. <laughs> and back then, and of course, this was the hype of the internet business in the, in the late 90s, he proposed to the Board of the Bank to create a venture capital firm to invest in technologies. That was regarded as a good idea. It was never set up as a corporate VC in the sense that it never served a strategic purpose of the bank. It was purely financially driven to invest in good technology companies. As you can imagine, 20 years ago, there was not a lot of deal flow going on around here in Europe in general, and even less so in Portugal. He was fortunate enough to have a little bit of networking. And of course, the bank had also a little bit of networking in the US. And so very early on, literally from day one, Schwedizan Ventures was investing internationally and a lot of it in the US, which quite frankly was instrumental to gain some experience to learn about venture capital because there was also I mean, not a lot of people in Europe back then that could teach us about venture. And it was also helpful to create a little bit of a network in the US that still today continues to service and, and the companies that we invest in in Europe very, very well. So probably at a certain point in time, half of portfolio was US and half was Portugal. But Spiritsand Venture was always owned by Bank Spiritsand. Bank Spiritsand was in each of the funds that we raised, an anchor investor. But then we had to go out and fundraise like everyone else. So we had private investors coming into the fund, typically uh, individuals, a couple of family offices. But we never had the opportunity to have other institutional investors for the simple fact that we were always classified as a captive team in the sense that on paper, uh, even though we operated completely autonomously and our decisions to invest were our own and, and nobody else's, there was, there was no uh, intervention from the bank in any aspect of our activity. But on paper, we were formally owned by the bank. So the bank could, you know, theoretically decide that Pedro or Joaquin will now leave and be director or something else from the bank. 
So theoretically, that risk existed. So that meant that institutional investors were not available to invest in captive teams. It was becoming clear that if we wanted to move forward and you know continue to take the project forward and raise new funds, the need to have other institutional investors was going to be very much an important one and that we needed to become independent in order to be able to do that. And that was even aggravated after the financial crisis with all the changes in regulations in Europe for banks. Essentially, that it became really expensive for banks back at that time to be investors in venture funds because essentially for every euro that they put in a the fund, they need to keep, I don't know, four euros in a safe somewhere <laughs> just to manage the risk of that investment. And so when I joined the team, when Joaquin hired me, in the back of my mind, that was already a project, uh, even though it was uh, early days to, to think about it. But after the, the crisis, that became fairly uh, evident. So we went and proposed to the board of the bank to become independent, to do a, a management buyout, essentially. In the 100 and I don't know how many years of history of, of the bank, there had never been a management buyout, believe it or not. So this was something new even for the bank. We managed to negotiate that. And then we were literally weeks away from closing it. The legal team of the bank started being less responsive than usual. <laughs> we didn't really know what was going on. And then all of a sudden, the bank collapsed. Everybody knows what happened with the bank back then. So we were caught in the middle of the storm. <laughs> we were not a priority. <laughs> we were the least of the bank's problems. And so our management buyout was uh, simply put on hold for quite some time. Eventually, we were able to, again, get in front of the board and re-explain what we were doing and the project that we were willing to move forward and our need to be independent. And eventually, the board of banks say, yeah, yeah, I totally get it. You guys need to carry on your project. You need to become independent. This is not a core activity of the bank, and the bank needs to refocus on its core activities. So absolutely, by all means, you need to become independent. But guess what? Uh, the bank has <laughs> a liquidity issue, and the bank has been an anchor investor on the funds that we had under management uh, at that time. In order for you to become independent, what I would need to happen is you need to find liquidity for our LP stakes in your funds. That's sort of the message that we got from the bank, which made complete sense uh, at that time. So we had to literally go out and find out about the secondary market and eventually put together a syndicate of 15 different investors, including ourselves, that bought out the LP stakes that the bank had in the fund. So we replaced one LP in several funds with a syndicate of 15 LPs in those same several funds, then the MBO could happen. And so at that point in time, but the whole process took like three and a half years. It was long, painful, complex. It's like it took several attempts. We went back to square one several times, which was hard. In that meantime, we exhausted the capacity of the funds that we had in the management. So there was a period there in which we had no investment capacity. So it took some effort to sort of stay relevant. I mean, we had a, an important legacy portfolio, of course, which we kept, but it was an effort, a deliberate effort to stay relevant in the market, even though we didn't have any investment capacity, because also in that meantime, we were formally precluded from fundraising. So it wasn't until we closed that, and this is September 2016, that we were able to go back and start fundraising again. So December 16, Armilar was born. It's exactly the same company as Spirits and Ventures once was. Same team, the same portfolio, the same history. Actually, the same company. It's just a changed name and a changed ownership structure. Also owned by the five partners here. 
And so that's when we went back into fundraising and we raised our first uh, fund as an independent investor, which is the one that we are uh, deploying right now. I'd love to, um, if you'd be up for it, <laughs> dive a bit more into this MBO. And I think it's very interesting because I don't think there are many GPs of CVCs that don't think that at some point in their journey, <laughs> they will either spin out through an MBO or doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. That is all the time in the back of people's mind most often, right? There must be a lot of learnings for you that would be interesting to dive into. So, But I don't know where to start, right? What would you say? What would have been the biggest learnings for someone working in a CVC and thinking, okay, it looks like we're not that interesting to the mothership anymore. We should start thinking. First of all, let me insist on this point. We were never a CVC in the sense that, you know, a CVC typically serves a strategic purpose, right? And we had to go out and raise funds from private investors like everyone else. We were just restricted on the types of private investors that we could tap into because we were captive. So we were a captive VC. That's what the C stands for in this case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For captive, not for corporate. Yeah. But that makes a lot of difference at the time of spinning off because essentially it means that at least if you've done your job well, you have a portfolio that is theoretically interesting from a financial investor, from other institutional investors. You don't necessarily have a portfolio that is only interesting for the corporate that you serve. Yeah. That makes a whole of a lot of difference. So when we went out into the secondary market, and by the way, this is the largest uh, secondary market that I think has been done in, in Portugal. It was the largest VC deal in Portugal, or the whole VC universe at that time. It's not anymore, fortunately, but it's still a, a very large secondary option. So the bank had, you know, a little bit more than half of each of the funds, and we had like about 200 million under management back then. The fact that we had the portfolio that we had is really what made the difference and made us able to form that syndicate. And if we had had a portfolio that was focused on any strategic restrictions or had been a corporate VC, that would have been a completely different yeah. story. If what you're looking for is to spin off what you have rather than create something new, then the portfolio really, really matters. The other learning there is that you have to be able to show from a track record point of view, investment decisions are well fundamented, that you have the structure, you have the processes behind it to support that and to continue support that going forward. Because the secondary investors will come in buying into an existing portfolio, but they trust you to continue to manage it. I'm curious because I actually spoke to a manager who was in the situation of, okay, should we start moving on this on an MBO? And one of his deliberations is, of course, hmm, where do I start? Of course, I can talk to my management team who will want to buy to do this. But do I start with the syndicate to test the waters or do I start internally? How did you think through this? Because it's a very political process. Right? <laughs> Once yeah. you've asked, you've asked, right? <laughs> In our case, we didn't start with the syndicate. We started first rounding out the troops within the team, just confirming that everybody was on board. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you could have, and we didn't have any, but it could have been situations in which people were sort of comfortable staying working for a corporate rather mm-hmm. than, you know, taking off on an adventure, <laughs> even if it's with a team that they've known and worked for years. And that was important also because we've always had a very stable team. So everybody knows everybody really well. 
we started by rounding out the troops and making sure that everybody's on board or if we had any anyone who wasn't not really aligned which we did not so everybody was on board and we set off negotiating the management buyout and this was because in our initial plan that i described previously we weren't really thinking of doing a secondary sell of the bank's LP stakes we were just thinking of doing pure and simple management buyout yeah and it wasn't until we were provoked by the bank to do that that we, you know, we really put our foot to the ground and went and learned about the secondary market, of which we had never known anything. We had to learn what the secondary market really is and, and how it works and what's your incentives and all of that and who they are. So in our case, we did start there. Of course, had we known what we know today, we probably would have started on the syndicate side. Would, on the syndicate, so at least talking to investors, sense their appetites the price point so that we can then approach the bank with a, a sort of a full package. Okay, so here's the deal. This is the opportunity for liquidity and, and the management buyout associated with that. Yeah. I think it would have been easier and shorter, of course, but that's with all the hindsight that we have today. Because this was really, really, really a learning process. Like I said, we had to hit our heads on the wall several times and go back to square one several times to come up with the solution that worked. How did you ensure, Pedro, that the bank's management trusted you in this process? Because obviously the management team stands to gain in many <laughs> situations from bargaining more on the syndicate side than on the bank side. Great question. So first of all, I mean, of course, there was a history of trust between the bank and our team. Even so, like you said, you know, so the economic incentives may be not necessarily aligned. So of course, the bank needs to make sure that, you know, if they're going to be looking for liquidity, they get the best offer possible, of course. Mm -hmm. And that was the first approach. When we started working on secondary, the way that we structured this, look, we're offering all the support, all the information, all the data rooms, whatever is needed and we will go out and help find those secondary buyers to do this. Uh, but this is the bank's negotiation. Yeah, so the bank hired a placement agent and to go out and look and make the contacts. That didn't work well. And the main reason is so it's a funny thing about secondary buyers in LP stakes in venture is even though they're venture investors, at the end of the day, they're buying venture assets, mm -hmm. they're very risk averse in the sense that what they're doing is buying into an existing portfolio. So not like the risk of someone with an aspiration to invest in great companies. So, you know, these are the companies. This is the list. They go through that list and, you know, pick the obvious winners, mm -hmm. right? So there's no risk that this company will uh, be worth zero. So they're already selling, already at certain level, et cetera. So they pick those few assets in the portfolio, look at their valuation, apply a discount. Yeah. <laughs> They put everything else, whatever there's a minimum risk, at zero, yeah. <laughs> right? So that's their price point. And then they say, well, but we'll give you a certain amount of that up front, and then there's an earn out yeah. if those companies continue to perform well. Yeah. So almost zero risk, which yeah. is an interesting concept for us in venture. And so the proposals that, or the, the approaches that came out of that were, frankly, not very attractive for the bank, especially since the bank's main problem in, yeah. in our particular case was liquidity. So it's like they wanted you know, money up front, not an earn out. And, you know, of course, as little discount as they could get, but yeah. more essentially money up front. So that was not going too well. So that was a few times that we had to hit our hands and go back to square one. And essentially what we ended up doing was turn the tables the other way around and say to the bank, we think that we can 
put together a syndicate if you let us do it. Yeah. Here's the price. I think I can get a syndicate. Here's the terms. Here's the conditions. Yeah. If you accept these terms and conditions, then I'll go out and put together a syndicate. Yeah. And that's what we did, and that's what worked. So we essentially ended up being the ones negotiating the price with the bank and then go out and find the investors at that price point, uh, at that structure to do it. And why do you think that worked? From the bank's perspective, you know, it worked because you know you put together the structure that served their purposes better. And it worked because it was a very, very concrete offer that we put on the table with secondary investors. This is it. This has been negotiated. It's been accepted. So there's no going back and forward. This is it. This, these are the assets. Look at it. Value however you want to value them. This is the price for the portfolio. I've been listening in, Pedro, but I actually need to jump in now and ask you a question, which is, I'm very interested to know the profile of that syndicate. Are we talking high net worth individuals? Are we talking corporates? Are we talking national, international? Super interesting to know what's the type of portfolio that actually got excited yeah, yeah. with a deal like that. It was a mixed bag. There was one a larger investor that, that led this. Was, this was a public, which was Sonai Investment Management. This was the beginning of Sonai Investment Management, so one of their earlier investments. They very clearly say, well, we're typically not LPs, but looking at the portfolio, there's, there's interesting things there and we want to be part of it. So even though they're typically not LPs, they became LPs in our funds through that. Sonai was an important one. But then we had European secondary funds of funds. We had US-based wealth managers. We had LPs from the other LPs who were not the bank from our prior funds doubling up. Private individuals, we had even founders from our own portfolio wanting to step in. We, of course, ourselves stepped in. So it was really a mixed bag of well-informed and sophisticated investors that were put together for this. Based on that experience, Pedro, and I know it's not at all your focus. I think that should be our next topic. What is your focus? But before going there, based on that experience, when you look at the secondaries market uh, in VC, what is exciting about it? What do you think is interesting? Do you see opportunities? Do you see it as already saturated, as you know, very sparse in need of some disruption? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Like I said, they're a different animal to the primary VC investors in the sense of the risk appetites. It's an interesting area of our business to learn and understand about because, as we all know, funds are taking long times to develop. You know, the typically 10 years plus two is more like 14 <laughs> yeah. or more, which is fine, but it essentially means that often you get LPs in a fund that have been there for a long time, and even though there's assets that are performing well, at some point in time, they'll want to get the liquidity out. And so maintaining a relationship with secondary investors is relevant for a VC funds manager because at some point in time, you need to go and find liquidity, even though you're going to continue managing a given asset. You want to provide and offer the option to your LPs to take out money off the table and get some liquidity. To your question, I think the secondary investors and venture through that have become more and more sophisticated. There's a handful of them that are really, really sophisticated, intelligently informed about the market, very smart about the decisions that they make. But I don't think it's saturated at all because there's going to continue to be opportunities for secondaries going forward. I think more and more as the funds extend their lives. Pedro, we, um, we've been having a lot of uh, good time talking about, uh, <laughs> you know, the back end, so to speak, of the VC machine. Yeah. I think it would be really cool to hear you talk about Armilar's thesis and strategy and particularly how it has evolved over time. 
because you guys are mm-hmm. a different kind of VC player than what we typically see now in the ecosystem. Because a lot of new players mm-hmm. have come, a lot of exciting stuff is happening. But I think what would be interesting to kind of tease out of you is, you know, as one of the first players in the market in Portugal and also one of the early players in Europe, how have you evolved over time your thesis and strategy? Today we follow a strategy as sort of a dual track strategy in terms of stage of investment, in the sense that we have sort of earlier stage funds that invest up to Series A typically, and then we have funds geared to do Series A onwards, right? So the one that we're deploying right now is one of the earlier stage ones, and we're preparing and we're now raising for the next fund, which will be a Series A onwards type of funds. What we've always focused on in terms of investment thesis has always been on technology-intensive companies. Some may call it deep tech, but that just is an ill-defined term that means different things for different people. And it goes back to our DNA as people more than by any strategic uh, vision (laughs) at the very beginning of being engineers and scientists at heart. Our preference has always been to invest in companies that have ownership of a technology that they use to defend their position competitively. Particularly in Portugal, that's been really interesting to see, but I'll, I'll go back to that. So essentially, it means that we've always invested in, in companies that own technology, sometimes stemming off of R&D, and then they're looking to commercialize the results of that research and of that technology, turn it into a product and commercialize it. Right now, we're fully focused on information technologies, broadly speaking and broadly defined. So data, digitization, connectivity, etc. In the past, we've sort of were even broader in that definition of technology-enabled business in the sense that, you know, we invested in material science, we invest a lot in hardware, and we sort of moved away from that scope with time. The reason we started off with a broader focus, of course, is that there was nobody else around <laughs> way back then. And so we found really interesting opportunities, even areas that were a little bit outside of our background in in information technology and found appealing opportunities to invest, which would not have been funded by anyone because there was nobody else around. And of course, as the ecosystem evolved into another uh, investor starting appearing that could also participate in those investments, we sort of retrenched, refocused on the stuff that we do best Also in terms of stage, how this has evolved is, first of all, let me go back and say this. Our positioning right now is we're more of a generalist local champion than we are a very specialized investor. Two extremes, you're either a local champion or a vertical champion. If you're a vertical champion, very specialized in a narrow niche and you have to invest anywhere in the world, that's not who we are. We're more of a local champion in our region, Portugal and Spain, but always with this uh, technology angle but very agnostic in terms of industry and verticals. That's what's also led us early on to sort of be very, very broad in in scope in terms of investment. Now, when we started in the first few funds that we raised, that, like I said, invested a lot in US, those funds were more geared to do Series A type investments. And back then, the investment uh, names of rounds was much more compartmentalized than, than it is today. Like there's like different boxes of seed and pre-seed and pre-series A than there are today. So it was like, okay, there was nothing and then there was series A and then there was series B. So we pretty much we raised funds that were geared to do investment tickets above 1 million. But again, this was a time where we were investing a lot outside, investing a lot in the US and only occasionally investing in Portugal when we saw great opportunities coming there. But then this, we had you know the privilege of seeing 
the whole ecosystem in Portugal in particular flourish from being almost not to what it is today. At that time, then we started to see really interesting opportunities becoming available for investments. I know we can, we can talk about names if you want to, but our funds were not necessarily geared up to do. Small companies with very small teams at the very beginning, what was now what we consider the pre-seed, and we had funds to do up north of one million. That's when we started to raise funds that were more prepared to do seed and pre-seed. That's when we started to seed and pre-seed properly in late 2000 knots, so 2008, 9, 10, 11. And that's where we started to follow sort of this dual track yeah. strategy of having earlier stage funds and Series A onwards funds. You've hinted to this, Pedro, and, and so have I actually. <laughs> the Portuguese ecosystem has been booming over oh, yeah. the last years. And what I've found actually quite exciting is the VC side of it has been actually having super interesting developments over the last couple of years with new funds popping here and there with more or less differentiated strategies, depending on, on your position in the market and how you perceive them. I'd like to ask you, you know, as a longstanding player in the ecosystem, and as you were just saying, you know, how that also to some extent informs the refinement of your strategy. Where do you see the ecosystem today? What would you share with international VCs who are looking from the outside into Portugal? How would you describe the ecosystem today to them? For us, the international interest from VCs into Portugal is very, very welcome. It's fascinating to begin with, and it's really welcome and a, a proof point of how important it is with stuff that we've built here. Because we started out doing investments in the U.S. early on, so we had a bit of a network with U.S. investors, and we made it sort of a point and a mission almost of ourselves to bring those investors and invest in, into Portuguese companies. For a long time, it was like, no, why? <laughs> why would a U.S. investor you know, come and invest in Portugal? It's like, I don't even know where to place it on the map. So it was unthinkable, but we kept on insisting and, and trying to show off our good portfolio companies. So that evolved into, well, interesting company that you have there. Why don't they move to San Francisco or to New York so that I could invest in them? Okay, that's an evolution. That's still not what we want, but it's better than what we had. And then gradually those stigmas and barriers started breaking down. And we brought in a U.S. investor we had co-invested with uh, in a company that we sold to Google and became close to them. We brought them into one of our, at the time, very young and promising companies, like Feedzai, for example, which we had invested in when they were literally the three founders incubated in, in Coimbra at the IPN. And so, you know, they fell in love enough with the company to invest in them, even though they were completely based off of Portugal, but already having some good inroads commercially into the U.S. and other countries. So they were convinced enough to do that. And we did something similar also with OutSystems. So little by little, those barriers started to fall. And then all of a sudden you have like Goldman Sachs and KKR investing in OutSystems. Okay, so that sort of opened the floodgates and say, okay, if those guys invest in Portugal, that's must mean that it's okay. I mean, the legal system works, the investors are good enough. And then everybody started looking into Portugal. So in this sort of created a boom of investors, international investors, who of course have, with time, have sort of internationalized also their mandates, their willingness to deploy money. And of course, with increased competition in their local markets, if we're talking, for example, in Northern Europe, uh, they need to look elsewhere. And quite interestingly, see, well, look at these companies that have come out of Southern Europe and of Portugal, of all places, 
that nobody have ever heard of another these big and nice companies. We need to go in and find out what's going on. And it just so happens, and this is, of course, an important aspect, that Portugal continues to be underserved in terms of local capital available. Of course, there are a number of good and professional investors. The funds are still small, even for size of the market. And therefore, that creates a lot of opportunities for international investors to come in and look at it. So going back to your question, the way I describe it to international investors is, look, it's become a really well-educated, well-prepared, mature market that you can look into with these really interesting companies with some characteristics that I can also point out. And it's still, to some extent, a land of opportunity in the sense that, you know, it's not like the locals have it covered. Because <laughs> there's, you know, there's plenty more to invest here than the locals can handle. And so it's not a week goes by that I don't have a call with at least one or two international investors wanting to come in and look at what's going on here. And one important characteristic of everything that we've seen maturing in, in our little ecosystem here is that we have the advantage, <laughs> quite paradoxically, that we're a tiny country that is not a market. Portugal is not a market. At best, it's a pilot. <laughs> As a pilot, it's a good pilot because you know infrastructure is good. Digital literacy is quite good. Everybody speaks good English. It's a place that people like to be in and with nice weather, etc. So it's a pilot. It's a good pilot, but it's nothing more than a pilot. And that has meant that... Contrary to what we've seen in, in other places, including in Spain, Germany, and France, where the local market is big enough to support a large, healthy business, the companies that are born here are, you know, if they're good, they're never born with a local mindset. And that has also driven the types of companies that we like, which are technology-based. So it's not like if you create a pure internet business type of company, naturally you start with local market and see where it goes, and then you expand internationally. If your business hinges on the technology that you own, it doesn't really matter where your first customers are. And very often they're not in your local market. That creates an edge, that creates an angle that becomes really interesting, I think, for even for the international investors that come and have a look at what's going on here. I've been feeling lately that not a week goes by where I don't talk to some VC that's moving to Portugal yeah. for three months or for six months or just testing if they want to live in Lisbon, that kind of thing. So it's actually yeah. pretty, uh, there's something happening there. Andreas, that is something that would have been unimaginable, like not even 10 years ago. Like, yeah. It's completely, completely changed. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing to follow on the sidelines here. Pedro, it's about time we go to the quick fire round. Quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds per each. Are you ready? Yeah, shoot. Let's see where that takes us. Yeah, yeah. First question is, in venture, what areas excite you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? That's an interesting one. I mean, there's so much going on that it's hard to be unique and original and find something that other people are not looking into. So one area that we've been very, very bullish on for a long time, way back when we invested in OutSystems in 2007, is the whole movement of low-code and no-code. Back then, of course, nobody believed that that was a proper professional <laughs> trend. The market proved that company right, and our thesis as well. So we've been, for a long, long time, followers of that trend of moving towards low-code and no-code. And that has evolved to the whole space of empowering citizens to master technology and to build something themselves, if, even if they're not, you know, train in information technology, the whole space of like rows, for example. So the stuff that helps you as a non-developer to build stuff with information technology, that's super exciting. That has also evolved into the whole space of developer tools and development environments. Uh, so 
several companies invest in that space, like Codacy or uh, Pendra in Spain. So the whole tools to support developers, you know, deliver uh, better code. That is sort of an inexorable trend that we look into. I'd also mentioned privacy enhancing technology. So all the stuff that, you know, I think is macro and inexorable trend as well that people and governments want to take care of people's privacy with greatest rigor. And it's not just regulatory driven with GPR, et cetera. It's also on everybody's minds. And I also mentioned space tech, which was, you know, okay, so it's, it's hard to say that nobody's excited about space tech, but we certainly are. We just announced the first investment in space tech. I think that's really, really promising, exciting space to be in. Absolutely. Yeah, the part about governments caring about privacy, yes, they do, as long as it's not your money, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, next question. What are your top three tips for emerging VCs who are fundraising? For emerging VCs in particular, especially if you're first time raising, first time manager, so understand very quickly, do not waste a lot of time into LPs that you're not necessarily ready for. And not everybody will tell you straight off the bat, we don't do first time managers. Those that do that make things easier. But even those that don't, really their requirements are not compatible with first-time managers uh, in the sense of everything that they require in order to do investment. So try and filter that out quickly. So that would be one. The other one that I think is really important and sometimes overlooked is take care of what I call the LP user experience. So it's not all about you know, telling a beautiful story and having a beautiful and attractive and appealing investment thesis. It's also making sure that you have the processes, the tools, the professionalism behind it to, in terms of whatever from reporting to uh, the documentation that you do on each of your investment decisions. Make sure that the VC sees that you are professional. Not only that you do you know, tremendous investment decisions into future unicorns, but you're also professional and deliberate about what you do. That takes you a long way. Third, have a very clear storyline. So there's so much competition out there you need absolutely to find an angle of why you and what is it that you're going to be doing with the people's money <laughs> very clearly and differentiating with. And that is hard to do these days because everybody is on thesis. Final question. What can we expect in the future from Petro and Amrilog? <laughs> well, hopefully expect a few more success cases. I think we have a few up our sleeves. They're going to do their own thing and, and path and take some time to develop, but there's clearly potential here. Hopefully expect also, you know, some interesting, intriguing, also fun investments that we look to do. Uh, certainly, I mean, this is a really fun job. Finding fun investments is part of what we do. And hopefully also, I mean, our ambition is to make of Armilar a solid, recognizable, reputable European brand in VC. We have sort of that status clearly in our region, and we do have the beginning of that elsewhere in Europe. But I think we would like to make it a very well-known, established brand in Europe. Pedro, thank you for joining us. If we can in any way help in solidifying the brand of Armillar across <laughs> Europe, drop us a line. We'd love to be involved and keep us posted with any developments. Thank you. All right. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Take care. Thanks a lot. Four Degrees is the VC Relationship Intelligence CRM that helps you source and close deals in less time. Built by VCs who recognize the power of relationship networks, 
Four Degrees will transform your network into a living, breathing engine of opportunity by optimizing the deal-making process. To learn more about how Four Degrees can help you leverage your firm's relationships to move deals forward faster, visit fourdegrees.ai forward slash EUVC. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast that insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.